Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast is a Christ-centered podcast. Established in 2019 and hosted weekly by Pastor Chris Busher. Addressing a host of topics such as the Great Commission, Christian discipleship, and often featuring interviews with special guests who are experts in their field. The views and events expressed on this podcast and all related materials belong solely to their author and not necessarily to the author's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. While all attempts are made to present accurate information, some information may become outdated over time. Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast makes every attempt to timely update any and all such information. Without further delay, here's another powerful episode of Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast. Once again, my name is Dallas here. Today, we have another incredible guest joining us today, Dr. Oziah Anthony Harris. Such a pleasure to have you here today. How are you? Dallas, I'm doing wonderful over here in Virginia. Got this overcast, but life is still great and the sun is shining. I mean, come on, that's good. I want to, before we jump in, I just want to talk about your background. So it says deliberations over the soul of America. What is this? Just to explain your background. And then I want to go into your personal story a little bit after that. Okay. Well, uh, you have the book written initially uh, in 2017. God is allowing somewhat of a resurgence here in 2023. Um, if you look at America. Uh, NBC uh, did a study back in 2015, 16-ish uh, about the racial climate or at least perceptions of the racial climate in America. Uh, they had a couple of Gallup polls to kind of uh, reinforce some of their assertions uh, that there was an increasing belief that race was becoming more of uh, an issue of concern, race relations rather, more of a concern here in this country. Uh, when you looked at the numbers that the poll showed, uh, you had 2008-ish, uh, uh, where those numbers fall from 17%, somewhere in there, to closer to 10 12%. By 2010, however, you're seeing those numbers go back up a little bit. By 2014, uh, they're back up to the 17 20%. And then by 2016, those numbers jump all the way up uh, to well over 30%, almost 40% of persons who really are concerned about race relations in this country. What was happening? Uh, you have the uh, historic presidency of Barack Obama, uh, first African-American president in 2008. You have this consensus in America uh, that we have entered this post-racial uh, society. By 2010, however, uh, you're beginning to see some of the rhetoric uh, in our political uh, uh, theater, if you will. Uh, you're looking at some of the Tea Party. You're looking at uh, rumblings here and there. Uh, and, and we're beginning to understand that perhaps we have not arrived as it related to this post-racial society. Um, by the time you get to midterms in 210, uh, then the second term of Barack Obama, you have outright backlash. Uh, you're beginning to see more and more uh, some of the uh, microaggression, uh, some of the same old tropes uh, recurring again. And we begin to understand that perhaps we have not progressed. You have 2014. You have Trayvon Martin. Mm -hmm. After Trayvon Martin, 
you have uh, the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in South Carolina, 2015, if you will, Dylan Ruth in that murder. You have Freddie Gray uh, in that same year. You have uh, in Texas, Sandra Bland. Uh, and, and we begin to see uh, some of these outward acts of uh, outright travesty and wrong, to be, to be totally honest. Uh, yeah. You go all the way to 2016, 2017. Uh, in 2017, uh, here in Virginia, the Unite the Right rally, uh, where a young Heather Heyer was actually killed and plowed down. And you saw those images uh, on all news outlets and social media. Uh, young men with, with tiki torches. We will not be replaced. Jews will not replace us. Uh, you saw uh, the convergence of hatred on full display. And, um, you know, I believe it is as it has always been. Uh, wherever there is seeming progress, particularly of people of color, I believe, uh, there has also been in America concurrently uh, this backlash, this mm -hmm. reaction. Uh, and you began to see that on full display, acts of aggression, acts of open intimidation, uh, acts of uh, suppression, if you will. And, um, for me, it was very hard. Uh, now, you know, I grew up in, or I was born in rural North Carolina, small place in North Carolina. Both of my parents are from a place called Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Um, uh, I grew up and in the just, South. If I could stop you there, uh, when my, you say a small city, what is the size of the city? Just just for me to identify how small we're talking here. So Rocky Mount uh, probably has less than 20,000 people currently. Uh, that's so, you know, that's but, so I'm, funny I'm because when people say small, small town America, they don't have any idea what I grew up in. I grew up in a city of 800 people in Northwest Missouri. 800 <laughs> is a small city. So when I hear small yeah. city, I'm like, they're probably thinking like 10,000, 20,000. So I always have to ask that. Yeah. So, okay, I understand. You're about under 20,000 people in your, your city. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, and so what we're now dealing with is um, the social construct of race. And I, and I want to mm -hmm. continue to hammer that, right. that, when you look at genetics, when you look at DNA, uh, no one can tell whether you're black, whether you're white. Mm -hmm. uh, race is a social construct. Uh, the concept of whiteness, uh, you don't get until the 1500s, right? Um, and so it is social in its construction, yet it has so many ramifications, real time and real life as it relates to policy, uh, as it relates to how people are treated. and so. Um, struggling with that, the fact that I know uh, that when I look at you and you look at me, uh, we have much more in common uh, than people would assume. But the reality that here in America, we've created this dichotomy based on race and it is having real effects, uh, right. not only my, on my community, but but on me as an individual. Uh, mm -hmm. And that spurred the writing of, of Trial by Fire. Amazing. You're listening to the Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast. We'll be right back after this quick word from our sponsors. Dive into a transformative journey with That's Not What the Bible Says. Challenge misconceptions about biblical events from Jesus' baptism to the Good Samaritan parable. This well-researched guide offers fresh perspectives, unveiling deeper insights into Scripture, the afterlife, and biblical fasting. Whether a lifelong believer or newcomer, this book is your key to authentic interpretations. Elevate your spiritual understanding. Order now on Amazon and embark on a profound exploration of the Word of God. 
Discover healing and hope with Grief After Stillbirth, a compassionate course by grief recovery specialist and licensed professional counselor, Nadine Josephs. Navigate the complex emotions of sadness, anger, guilt, and pain after the loss of a child through stillbirth. Visit www.josephscounseling.com to access this invaluable resource offering understanding, comfort, and guidance during this challenging journey. You're not alone. There is hope. And what would you say is your mission overall? Because you seem so passionate, educated about all of these topics that you're discussing here today. What is your mission? What do you hope that your readers and our listeners today gain from this topic, Trial by Fire? Well, I, I would hope a couple of things. But first and foremost, I hope that people will, would see and understand the historicity of racial conflict in America and its long-term effects, right? So when you talk to a lot of people, uh, the, the main contention, the main argument is that is something that happened yesterday. Uh, chattel slavery only uh, existed in the United States for 244 years. Uh, Civil War comes, uh, and even though it did not start as such, it has become tied to the issue, at least the abolition of slavery, uh, when initially the Civil War was simply about keeping the Union together. Uh, we allowed slavery to be called, or we allowed it to become the central issue in the Civil War, uh, so that one, you could have uh, Black defectors, the enslaved defect from the South, uh, two, it was another stab at the South as uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was only meant for states in rebellion. Um, but it became this cause, right? Uh, it should be over. 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, racism is no longer an issue. And, and I contend that when you look at 1865, uh, there was so much that happened afterwards. You had Reconstruction, which signifies a great opportunity for change in America, but how that change was very quickly rescinded as federal troops leave the South. You have, uh, at the top of the 20th century, uh, you have Jim Crow, you have Black Codes, uh, you have uh, the change of slavery from chattel slavery to peonage, and then the prison pipeline. Uh, these things did not come about out of nowhere. They were simply reiterations of the same old problem that we have already had. And so today, when you look at uh, voting uh, rights, when you look at poverty in this country, when you talk about the war on drugs in, in the 80s, when you look at uh, some of the ugliest moments in our present day history caught on uh, cell phones all across America, what you're gonna find is that legacy exists alive, a well, breathing, and strong in our society. And that if we don't understand that and make changes that this cancer will continue to spread, infect the entire body, and will cause the entire organism to die. That's the first thing I hope people realize. Yeah. Secondarily, I hope we understand that we have a collective uh, destination, right? Uh, this is not a black issue. This is not a white issue. Again, I contend that race is a social construct. We either attack this and defeat this together, or we have the alternative. We collectively solve it, or we collectively share a demise. And I think that a lot of people don't understand that. Listen, it is in America's best interest, not just black people. It, it is in America's best interest uh, 
to make sure we become the America that we know uh, we can be ordained by God. Otherwise, we will face the judgment of God. So it, those two prongs are really where I hang my hat. A house divided shall not stand. We understand that clearly. So let us begin to stand. Yeah. Let us become more united uh, about this particular problem. Let us look at it in the mirror and let us once and for all decide to defeat it. Yeah. And as you said, we need to change this. So how do we change this? So part of what we see in trial by fire uh, is in somewhat of an allegorical sort of way. Uh, you take uh, the defendant, which is America, um, in her personified uh, manner or as the character. And we have a trial uh, of jurors who are, you know, of course, her peers. Um, so metaphorically, the trial of the execution of justice. But before that, a trial is the platform where evidence is presented. And so, again, what we've stated as part of the problem is we have differing views as to whether or not one racism exists and two, to the degree that it affects our contemporary society. And what you have in this particular case uh, is America on trial, metaphorically, um, provided with evidence through the testimony of the jury as they are recalling the evidence in the hopes that people will see the evidence in the same way so that we can co take collective action. Um, there is a movement in this country uh, as it relates to what has been deemed as hard history. Uh, some have characterized it as critical race theory. Uh, what it amounts to, quite simply, is America, all of us, don't want to look ourselves in the mirror and call a spade a spade. We don't want to factually uh, look at what we have done as a nation. And I say the collective we again, we the people, mm -hmm. because we don't necessarily want to be accountable for the outcomes. When you look at reparations in this country, right, 1988-ish, Ronald Reagan provides reparations uh, for Asian Americans for their mistreatment uh, at the conclusion of World War II. Uh, when you look at Abraham Lincoln, uh, as he signs uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, he then turns around in DC uh, and creates an act or policy of reparations for slave owners in the, D in the district who have lost wages uh, because slaves have now been free. Uh, reparations is not a new thing. Uh, reparations uh, simply says, I know what has been done wrong and I am making a an attempt to right that wrong in a significant sort of way. Uh, I have yet to see made strides to rectify issues related to lack of education. Issues related to lost husbands and sons as a result of, of lynching. Issues related to uh, neighborhoods or communities like a Tulsa, Oklahoma burned to the ground. Uh, we've yet to see that. What we do see, however, are the effects of those things. Uh, and we're very critical about that. And so once again, uh, you take a biblical footnote. Uh, Zacchaeus uh, is a tax collector. He has wronged many people. He encounters Jesus and says, you know what? If I've wronged somebody, I'm going to pay him back. Uh, because sorry only goes but so far. Um, and until we do those type of real and radical type of things, 
Uh, again, I believe the problem will continue to persist. The injury will continue to fester. And again, we're looking at our, our collective demise. Yeah. And you're, you're very well spoken. So you're, you're basically answering everything that I'm, I'm curious about today that we had planned to discuss. And so any other things that you would want to discuss on this topic itself that you really want our, our listeners and your readers to understand today, to take away from your time here about this concept and about what we can do about it physically today? How can I put my hands to the plow and make a difference everywhere where I am today? How can we do that? So one of, one of the things we, hopefully that comes out of the reading of uh, the liberations of the soul of America, uh, Trial by Fire, is that we are better at dialoguing even when we disagree. Right? One of the things you're going to find when you read uh, Trial by Fire is the jurors of 12, all of whom uh, are of African descent, um, you're going to find that they don't think as a monolith. They don't think uh, singularly, if you will. There is a diversity of thought and opinion as it relates to the issue at hand, uh, i.e. in the book, The Crimes of, of America. And what you're going to find is they dialogue from various points of views uh, as it relates to the community. I thought this was important. Uh, the names of those jurors are either French uh, or Portuguese. Uh, we deal with actors and stakeholders in the actual slave trade. Uh, they are Swahili. Uh, they are Arabic. Uh, and the hope is you are able to see the different sides of the coin as it relates to the arguments. And you're able to understand the diversity of the arguments. And yet at the same time, we are able to disagree agreeably. Uh, so that we can come together for collective solutions. I don't think, and I think it's a function of majority minority, I don't think that the larger majority in America has done a great job of listening to minorities in America as it relates to this particular subject. Conversely, I also don't think uh, that minorities in this country have done a, uh, as well a job as they could uh, of really being authentic and asserting their true grief at the grievances as it relates to what goes on in this country. So if you never tell the truth, then no one ever hears it. And if you never listen to the truth and accept it, then we can never do anything about it. And so I'm hoping uh, as you look at the book, two aspects of it that are important is this is a cry for collective justice. It's a cry for collective justice that is long, long, long overdue. Um, but it is also a harbinger of what lies ahead for all of us uh, when we don't heed that, that cry, right? Uh, the power of the pen is something else, right? The pen is mightier than the sword is the old cliche. Uh, the works of Martin Luther, as it relates to the Reformation, uh, invaluable. Uh, the works of Martin Luther King Jr., as it relates to uh, the civil rights movement, absolutely invaluable. Uh, the words and philosophy of a people can change the movement of men. And I hope that uh, through our words, through our dialogue, through our research, through our authentic desire to change America for all of us, uh, that we can get to the place where we disagree or are disagreeable in disagreeing. We are open to collective and creative solutions uh, and we are committed to the process because Change is never easy. Uh, we have a country uh, that exists founded under certain parameters. And, and, and a lot of people are not necessarily willing to accept that. 
right? Uh, but your first president had uh, well over 700 slaves. Uh, your second president had uh, 500 enslaved people. Uh, there's a provision uh, in uh, Article 1-9 of, of the Constitution, uh, the 1808 provision, as I, I call it, that slavery, uh, at least the transatlantic slave trade, would not be ended or condemned at least until 1808. Now, now I want you to let that seep in because what the founding fathers are saying, as they say uh, that all men are created equal, what they say is uh, we want to continue this enterprise that is very lucrative for us for at least the end of this particular generation. Now, now, when you start under that premise, then you have to understand uh, that it's going to take a lot to undo that. And I think that, again, uh, if we want to be the America that I believe uh, God has ordained in allowing us to settle on uh, this North American continent to begin with, then we have to really critically look at these things uh, and really do the radical things necessary to change them, to reverse them. Let's look at the faith aspect of your book, of the state of America as well. I've been out of the U.S. for the last five years, so I'm not exactly certain on the state of faith in the U.S. right now. Can you just walk us through what that physically looks like and what's next in that area? You know, that's very interesting that you say that. Uh, one of my final papers and, and, and dissertations um, was on the topic of faith in America church attendance in America. Uh, and as I was doing that, reading the works of uh, Tom Rayner, um, looking at the Pew Research Center, uh, for the works uh, surrounding that, going through combing uh, certain evangelical periodicals and looking at faith, uh, even looking at certain Gallup polls as it relates to faith. What we know today, quite simply, is that less people not only attend church, but more importantly, less people consider themselves, uh, profess themselves as believers. They don't see themselves with any type of institutional or traditional uh, church affiliation. Uh, many of them have some type of inkling of belief in a God, but don't necessarily practice it in their everyday lives. And I think that this... Uh, really bodes uh, a certain way for our country. Because when you look at Europe, you had that type of decline as well. Uh, they now have moved to more of a secular society. By 2050, 60, 70, I believe if the United States does not uh, reverse this particular trend as it relates to faith, that they will find themselves in the same predicament uh, as their older brothers in Europe, more of a secularized society uh, that is faith only in name. Uh, God bless America is the moniker that we hear all the time from many of our politicians. And yet those of us who are people of faith understand for God to bless us uh, in relationship, there is also an expectation of obedience to the God who blesses us. And so when you look at this, uh, one of the central characters of this particular book uh, is a character by the name of Iman. Iman is Arabic for faith. And what you will find in this book is how he interprets the information, filters the information, and comes to a place of leadership within that deliberating jury. Uh, I can't give you any more. You have to read the book to get the end of it. But it is very interesting because I believe 
that as Iman has to rise to a place of leadership, so does the church in America have to rise to the forefront of leadership. I'm not talking about simple political leadership. Uh, we know that uh, right-wing conservative churches have had uh, extreme influence uh, over conservative policy for years. Uh, I'm talking about uh, the type of change that comes when we have real relationship with God, uh, that he uh, softens the stony heart, how he uh, writes the word in our heart, uh, that we hide it in our heart, that we may not sin against him. I'm talking about the real church, the real remnant who is willing to take the love of God, the justice of God, which cannot be extricated from each other. Uh, the love of God and the justice of God and apply it in the country so that the rest of the world can see what a nation that is led by God, what that really looked like. I was going to ask you another question, but I think you answered it. Maybe you can add on it. And my question was, what can the church do today for that to happen? And so it sounds like what you're saying, take the justice and the love of God and share, share the love of God, share the, the mercy of God, share the justice of God, because as you said, that also is there. Sometimes we forget about that aspect of it, right? That, that that's also yeah. in there as well. We need the justice of God as well. Yeah. It, it, it is ironic that, that when Jesus comes out of the wilderness and Jesus goes back to his hometown and Jesus gives what many of us uh, recognize as his first sermon and he pulls the Isaiah text and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me that embedded within that particular uh, homiletical exposition to, to the congregation is that I have come uh, to, to heal the oppressed. I have come uh, to set the captives free. Uh, I, I have come to be a liberator, right? Um, that, that that is inherent in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet in our contemporary churches, uh, many times we deal with everything but liberation, everything but uh, the remedy to the oppressed, everything but the sick and shut in. Uh, you go back and have, see what Jesus did as he talked to his disciples. Hey, do you love me? Yeah, Jesus, I love you. Well, this is what I need to understand. Uh, how is it that you have not provided for the widow? When did you go see uh, the incarcerated? When I was hungry, uh, did you give me bread? Because as you've done to the least of these, so shall you do to me. Uh, there is a beauty in America uh, that people are not predestined uh, necessarily to a certain outcome. Yet at the same time, uh, we have uh, certain historical inequities uh, where sometimes zip code, uh, sometimes uh, the color of one's skin, pretend, depending on where you live, uh, can have a profound effect uh, on your trajectory. We're better than that. We're better than that. And we have to get to the place where uh, we realize, hey, maybe it wasn't man's intentions when we started out. Yeah, maybe we had a couple of guys uh, who were good men. And just because you're a good man doesn't mean you do everything right. That's the other thing about America. We can admit that we did bad things and still be a good nation. We can admit that we have fallacy and still be moving toward greatness. Uh, I, I think the church has to really get in there uh, and take her place. Uh, what does Jesus say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
we should infiltrate every space on earth, whether it is the school system, uh, whether it is the town council, whether it is the school board, whether it is the neighborhood association, whether it is uh, the school buildings, we have to infiltrate every place and bring the true representation of who God is to those spaces that this might be a better place for us to exist in and God may get glory. Wonderful. I want to leave our audience with a challenge here today. What could you challenge our audience based on your book and your time here today? The challenge. Uh, and I think the challenge is it's, it's very simple. Uh, you look at this metaphorically and you have uh, a defendant, America. You have a jury, um, those 12 jurors. You have a judge whose judgment is ultimately outside uh, the bounds and outstretched arms of any particular person involved. With that, we must understand uh, that there is a call to accounting that is coming, right? Uh, and when that happens, uh, we cannot necessarily control the judgment of the judge. What we can do now, however, differently is decide. I think all of us have uh, the ability and the responsibility to decide what type of country we have, to decide what we will do to ensure that this country's better. We must decide, that's first. But secondarily, uh, in our decision-making, we, we have to make haste because time is not necessarily on our side. Uh, and that if we take too much time, right? Uh, God is not slack concerning his promise. We, we understand that. Uh, God is not mocked whatsoever a man sows, so shall they reap. Whatsoever this no nation sows, we must understand we, we will also reap. Let us turn to repentance. Let us begin to sow different seeds in this country uh, because uh, judgment is near uh, if we refuse to decide. Or as I've heard it said commonly, the, the lack of decision or the refusal to decide is a decision in and of itself. When we take our hands off the situation and refuse to be active participants, then we have made a decision. And when we make that decision, let's be clear, uh, the God who heard uh, Abel's blood from the ground and came down to see about it, the God who heard the cries coming up from Sodom and Gomorrah and came down to see about it, that that same God is coming to see about America who has conveniently put God's name all over her dollar bills, all mm -hmm. over her rhetoric and policy, that God is coming for us as well. Thank you so much for everything that you shared here today. I really appreciate your time. And I was intending in the beginning of our episode today to get to know you a little, little bit better, but we jumped right in heavy. And so if you <laughs> want to just take a few minutes here and just tell us a little bit about your background, your education, some things that you, just to get to know you a little bit better, just to solidify everything that we talked about today. Th th thank you so much, Dallas. I appreciate it. Uh, listen, I'm just a simple, humble guy, man. Like I told you, my parents are both from place uh, called Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. Uh, it's small, uh, not as small as 800 people, but it's small. Um, I was blessed in that my dad uh, left the uh, sharecropping tract of his father um, and went into the military. He goes into the military and it offers my family the opportunity uh, to see not only the length and breadth of this country, but gave me an opportunity, even as a preteen, uh, to see the world. 
I went to middle school uh, in West Germany, Frankfurt, West Germany, which gave me the opportunity to see the United States uh, from the outside That's looking in. I am a right product of God's favor and blessing in that regard. Um, mm -hmm. Yes. And it's an important perspective, right? Because what it taught me uh, at 12, 13 years old uh, was that the way we see ourselves may not necessarily be the way that the world sees us, right? Uh, there are no rose-colored lenses in that regard. Uh, but I come back to Virginia. Uh, I matriculate into the College of William & Mary. Uh, I spend my time uh, there five years degreeing in both psychology and education. I am a lifelong educator. I believe in education. Uh, I would eventually uh, pick up a master's degree both in divinity uh, and in uh, educational leadership. And I pastor a church uh, above all things. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be a husband uh, of a beautiful woman and a, and a father of two kids that keeps me tempered, keeps me compassionate, uh, but also keeps me concerned about the world that my children will grow up in. Um, there isn't a lot to me other than I believe God brought me here for a reason, as I believe God brings us all here for a reason. And my job to simply, as Jesus stated, to work while it is day. Uh, for when night comes, no man can work. So God has given me this stage right now, and I want to be the best me God has for me to be, being a voice, loving people, being compassionate, uh, applying yeah. God's words and principles uh, so that the world that I live in is different from when, when I came into it. Excellent. Excellent. And one more time, where can our audience find your book, if you can identify that as well? Oh, thank you. Once again, man, I really appreciate it. It is on Amazon.com. Uh, and I have been blessed. Uh, it recently hit uh, number one bestseller in a number of categories, uh, including uh, international and uh, best short, short read, two hours and under uh, political read. And so Amazon.com is the place where you can find it. Uh, you can also reach out to me on my personal website at www dot d-r-u-a-h d-r-u-a-h dot org uh, i'm found on every social media platform as dr uzziah that is d-r-u-z-z-i-a-h again d-r-u-z-z-i-h and on facebook uzziah anthony harris so uh easy to find um and open to be found uh, i believe we have to solve this together uh, we live in a community and we just want it to be the best it can be. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. If you could end our time with a prayer for our audience, that would be excellent. Amen to that. Amen to that. Uh, God, our Father, I thank you uh, for this moment in time uh, that you have allowed us to live in. Uh, as Esther, God, we get the word. We understand. We were created for such a time as this. The America that we exist in, God, uh, is not an easy America. But you said, ask you, God, a hard thing. Uh, as you told uh, my brother Abraham, is anything too hard for you? Uh, you are able to bring virility back in old age. Uh, as you told Ezekiel, you are able to make dry bones live again. Uh, as you showed us through Jesus Christ, you are the God that resurrects even after uh, we believed it was all over, God. And we just pray for your spirit 
in this place. We confess a need for you. We know we can't do it without you. Move from North Carolina to California. Move from Texas uh, to Colorado. Move across the length and breadth of this nation, God, and breathe upon it, God. Have your way, God. Uh, work through God, your very people. Let us be your eyes and your ears and your hands and your feet. Let us be your mouthpiece, God. Not saying what we would say, but saying what you would give us to say. Above all things, God, let your love permeate through us in such a way uh, that this world would be captivated by your love and would come running asking, what must I do to be saved? God, we thank you for the opportunities we've, you've given us. We thank you for the grace and the mercy that follows us all the days of our lives. We thank you uh, for how you've made a way out of no way. We thank you, God, that we don't have to stand on our own. Uh, it's not by our works, but by grace we were saved, God. And we pray that you allow this grace to be shed abroad. Do it, God. Do it like only you can. And we will stand as your people saying, uh, we are your servants and we're listening, uh, that we will do what you tell us to do, that we will go where you call us to go, Lord. We thank you right now and pray for your move. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You've just listened to the Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast. With your host, Pastor Chris Busher. Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast was recorded live in studio with final editing made before uploading. Subscribe today to Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. For more fantastic daily content, visit Pastor Chris Busher online via Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Don't miss the next episode on Faith and Family Fellowship Podcast.